This is the Music History In-Depth Podcast for January 29th through February 4th. On this week's show, it's all about death, unfortunately. A man who defined punk rock burned out but never faded away. A singer passes away and brings a disease to the forefront of a nation's attention. A famous producer murders an actress. And we'll talk about the day the music died. This show goes more in-depth about some of the events that we put on our daily podcast, the Music History Today podcast, which drops every single day, including weekends, wherever you get your podcasts from. Now, on to this week's episode. There are some celebrity deaths that come completely out of the blue and devastate you, like Prince's or David Bowie's sudden deaths. Then there are some who, when you hear about them, don't really shock you at all. Kurt Cobain, while tragic, didn't really shock anyone who had followed his path that year, then almost overdose only a few weeks earlier. Amy Winehouse's death didn't shock either, considering how much of her struggles with alcohol were known at the time. I'm pretty sure that when this next artist passed away, absolutely no one who was close to him was shocked by it all. If there was ever anyone who was the poster boy for punk rock, it was Sid Vicious. The man had anti-establishment written all over him with swagger to match. He became the bassist of the Sex Pistols because the group had just fired their original bassist, and Vicious happened to be at every one of the Sex Pistols shows, so he was familiar to the guys. Sid, however, well, he had a couple of problems. The first was that in the beginning... He couldn't play bass. In fact, for some gigs, the band unplugged his bass from the sound system. The second and more important problem was that he was a serious drug addict. By the time he joined the group, he was already using multiple drugs, and it didn't help that his mother, Ann Beverly, was also an addict and even gave him some drugs. Because of his use, he was hospitalized for a time for treatment of hepatitis. This meant that he missed a lot of time during the recording of the only Sex Pistols album, Never Mind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. So Steve Jones had to do both the bass and electric guitar on the vast majority of that album. The drug use also got in the way of the group. Sid went after audience members routinely. The band broke up two weeks into their U.S. tour in 1978. It was around this time that Sid met and started a very volatile relationship with a party girl and heroin user, Nancy Spungen. Their flames burned bright and fast for each other, and maybe a little too fast and bright. They would constantly get into fights, mainly brought on by drug rage, and it was during one of the drug rages that the unfortunate happened. On October 12, 1978, Sid woke up to find Nancy dead on the floor at the Hotel Chelsea in New York City on 23rd Street. She bled to death from a stab wound in the stomach. Sid was arrested and charged with murder. According to police, during the police interrogation, Sid changed his story a few times before confessing to the murder. Bail was set at $50,000, the conditions being that he not leave New York City and that he also check in with the police every day and also to seek treatment for drug addiction at a methadone clinic. During this time, Sid tried to commit suicide twice. 
once by cutting his wrist with a broken light bulb, which got him a visit to Bellevue Hospital psych ward. And while there, he tried to commit suicide again by jumping from a window. All the while, his lawyer tried to keep him out of jail. That changed one night when Sid went to a club and got into a fight with singer Patti Smith's brother, Todd Smith, after Sid hit on Todd's girlfriend. Sid was arrested for assault. Bail was set again, this time for $10,000, but the bond was covered by his old record label, Virgin Records. The rumor at the time was that Mick Jagger had quietly paid for Sid's lawyer during this time. However, that rumor was not true. It was actually Virgin Records who were covering all legal expenses for them. Sid was released from jail again on $10,000 bond on January 18, 1979. Even though his trial had actually officially started on January 2nd, Sid stayed in jail for a couple more weeks to complete his drug detox program, and on February 1st, 1979, Sid was released from jail. Sid celebrated his release and being clean from heroin the only way he knew how. He had his friend Peter Gravel get him heroin, and then they went to his friend Michelle Robeson's apartment on 63 Bank Street in Manhattan, where they were having a little get-together. Sid's mother, Anne, was there as well. That evening at the party, while talking about the future and making plans in the event of his acquittal, Sid Vicious took that heroin. He overdosed that night and passed away in his sleep, just three months shy of his 22nd birthday. He was found dead the next morning by his mother, and Robeson. His ashes, by the way, are scattered all over Nancy's grave. Sid's drug-addicted mother, Anne, ended up passing away from a drug overdose in 1996. As with everything in life these days, there's conspiracy theories both concerning Nancy's death and also Sid's overdose, including one concerning robbers who supposedly broke into the couple's hotel room trying to steal money that Nancy had and it turned into a robbery gone wrong, along with one about Sid's mother purposely injecting him with heroin in order to kill him. One could, I suppose, say that maybe Sid wanted to die because the thought of spending a good chunk of his life in jail didn't really seem like such a good thing, and since he had already tried to commit suicide before, twice actually, this was his way out. Who knows? Truth is, we never will. Surprisingly, Oliver Stone hasn't made a conspiracy movie about Sid and Nancy yet, although there was a 2009 documentary made called Who Killed Nancy, which made it seem like a drug dealer killed her. The 1986 movie, Sid and Nancy, starring a very young Gary Oldman, along with Chloe Webb, was actually a really good movie to watch as well. You should check it out. Since the punk rock era... The Sex Pistols have become, along with The Clash, the symbols of punk rock, and Sid has become its patron saint. What's ironic is that Sid's image is on every t-shirt, poster, and everything else that can be bought or sold these days. Now, I'm pretty sure that that is something that Sid would stick his middle finger up at. The untimely and yet not too shocking drug overdose death of Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols, February 1st, 1979. 
Next, there's an old train of thought about anything bad. It goes that no one will do anything about it until someone either gets hurt or dies. There's an intersection on a road that really needs a stop sign, and one usually gets put up, but only after there's a serious car crash. The same could be said for diseases. Usually, no one really pays attention to a disease until a big celebrity passes away from it. People in general could have cared less about AIDS until male movie heartthrob Rock Hudson got it, and then Freddie Mercury of Queen and tennis star Arthur Ashe. This next celebrity's death shined a light onto another disease that even few people in the medical field knew about, let alone the general public at that time. Karen Carpenter was a drummer and sang with her brother Richard as a duo called The Carpenters. After they toured and made a name for themselves in the late 1960s, they were signed to a record deal in 1969. After that, their careers took off. To show you just how big the Carpenters were, here are some stats. While Karen Carpenter was alive, the Carpenters released 10 albums. Of those, five hit the top 20 in America, with three of those hitting number two. Their 1973 Greatest Hits album hit number one in America, Canada, and the UK and sold at least 9 million copies worldwide, including 7 million copies in America. They had five albums hit the top 10 in Canada, Three hit the top ten in the UK, including one hitting the top spot. And surprisingly, they had five hitting the top ten in Japan, including two of those hitting number one. In fact, the Carpenters are actually the seventh biggest selling artists in the UK during the 1970s and the third biggest selling international artists of all time in Japan, right behind Mariah Carey and the Beatles. As far as their singles went, they released 50 singles, with 35 of those being released in Karen's lifetime. Of those, 25 hit the top 10 worldwide, with 19 hitting number one, including 16 number ones in America. They had huge hits like They Long to Be Close to You, We've Only Just Begun, Please Mr. Postman, There's a Kind of Hush, Only Yesterday, Top of the World, Yesterday Once More, Rainy Days and Mondays, among countless others. In total, they have estimated sales of over 100 million copies sold worldwide. They were pop adult contemporary chart juggernauts, which is where they got a lot of those number one songs to land. And while they're known for slow songs, smooth vocals, and especially Karen's silky smooth voice, a lesser thing that's remembered about them is that Karen was an incredible drummer. In fact, one poll that was done during the group's heyday called Karen the greatest drummer alive, and that was while Keith Moon of The Who was still living. Don't believe how great her drumming was? Just Google Karen Carpenter drumming on YouTube and you'll see. The woman was no slouch, as she showed in all of the TV specials that they did back in the 1970s. They also won three Grammy Awards and one American Music Award. Rolling Stone called them the 10th greatest duo of all time, and Karen was also put on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Singers of All Time list. Paul McCartney once said that Karen had the best female singing voice in the world, and Michael Jackson said that the duo was one of his childhood influences. 
what the general public didn't know during this time was that Karen was fighting a very, very private battle. She was fixated on her weight. She was especially fixated on getting thinner. It all started in high school. At that time, she weighed 145 pounds at 5 foot 4 inches tall. And with the help of a doctor, she went on what was called at the time the Stillman diet and dropped 25 pounds, weighing 120. She saw a photo of herself one time at that weight that made her look heavy, at least that's what she thought. A personal trainer told her to work out and go on a high-carb, low-calorie diet. That made her put on muscle, which in her eyes made her look bigger, not thinner. She started doing things herself after that, adopting a new diet, which brought her down to 110 pounds. She still wanted to lose five more pounds, so she would just eat less, employing old tricks like letting other people eat her food when at dinner. And in 1975, she was down to 91 pounds at five foot four inches tall. And it was at this point that people began to wonder what was wrong. She, of course, blamed it on something else. She blamed it on exhaustion. Finally, in 1981, she told her brother that she thought something was wrong. She had started using laxatives to help lose more weight, which made her drop more weight. She was also going through a bad marriage, which added even more stress. She went for treatment late in 1982 at Lenox Hill Hospital on the east side of New York City, where they tried something called intravenous parenteral nutrition. It worked. She gained back 30 pounds pretty quickly. The problem was that because of the disease, her heart was pretty weak and could not take the strain of pumping more blood. After Karen went back to California on the morning of February 4th, 1983, she got out of bed and collapsed. She was pronounced dead a short time later at Downey Community Hospital in Downey, California. Karen Carpenter was 32 years old. It was at this time that the world first heard about the disease anorexia nervosa. After her death, her family started the Karen Carpenter Memorial Foundation. I personally know of someone who had anorexia when she was younger. She was treated for it for over five years and has been healthy for about the past 20 years or so now. If you need help dealing with eating disorders or know someone who does, call the National Eating Disorders Association helpline at 1-800-931-2237. That's 1-800-931-2237. And I'll put that number in the show notes for you. The sudden tragic death of Karen Carpenter of the Carpenters from complications from anorexia nervosa on February 4th, 1983. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you about our other podcasts. The Music History Today podcast goes over the daily events in music history and drops daily, including weekends, on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. There's also the Music Halls of Fame podcast, which talks about a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with other Music Halls of Fame's museums and walks of fame. 
The Music Halls of Fame podcast drops every Thursday and can also be found on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to this podcast. In life, people are made of clay. No one is completely good or bad. People are fallible. They have two sides to them. Most time, one side outweighs the other. Good people usually keep their bad sides in check. The vast majority of times, their bad sides really even aren't all that bad. Good people might work too hard and neglect their families, for instance. They might be prone to alcohol or drug addiction. It doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them people with flaws. The same thing happens in reverse. People who kill or steal from people might actually treat their families like gold, and they may never touch drugs or alcohol. In our celebrity-driven culture, we tend to throw them completely into one camp or another. There is no in-between. Tom Hanks, Ryan Reynolds, Hugh Jackman, and Keanu Reeves, for instance, are considered some of the nicest people in Hollywood. I'm pretty sure that they have a bad side. That's probably not all that bad. But they keep it hidden away from prying eyes because that's what you do. Some celebrities have great public images but have allegedly done some pretty bad things. Sometimes it takes great public relations people and time to wash away what they were alleged to have done in the first place. Think Alex Rodriguez and the steroid issue back in baseball back in the day. Or Marv Albert, who was accused of sexual assault. Or Kobe Bryant and his alleged assault of a hotel employee. And that ended up getting settled out of court, but no one really brings that up, especially now that he's passed away. Sometimes great public relations people and time don't get to wash away everything, and these people tend to constantly get reminded about what they've done. Think Tiger Woods and his many affairs that he constantly gets reminded about, or worst case scenario, O.J. Simpson. O.J. was once one of the greatest running backs ever in football. He was a movie star, co-starring in the Naked Gun comedy movies with the late great Leslie Nielsen. He was also a very popular celebrity pitch man, telling people that he could fly through airports because of Hertz rental cars. However, he will forever and ever, of course, be known for allegedly killing his ex-wife and her friend. Musically... This next person fits more into the O.J. frame of things. Phil Spector was born Harvey Philip Spector on December 26, 1939 in the Bronx, New York. When Phil was 19, he helped to form the group The Teddy Bears. He was the guitarist, a songwriter, and also a vocalist. The group had a number one hit song called To Know Him Is To Love Him. Phil had bigger aspirations, though, and when he was 21, he started his own record label called Phil's Records. As a record label owner, Phil was notorious for having his hand in every aspect of recording. He wrote or co-wrote songs for groups, and his biggest contribution to music was as a producer. Phil liked the musical style of the classical composer Richard Wagner. Wagner was famous for loading his orchestras with a lot of instruments in order to get a fuller sound. Phil thought that if you could do that for classical music, then why can't you do it for pop music? 
Phil started producing with that style in mind. If other people used maybe two guitarists, then Phil used five. If they had a French horn for a song, he used five for that too. Anything that he needed to do to get that full, rich sound, Phil did. Under his style of producing, engineering, and layering all of those sounds one on top of the other, it was called the Wall of Sound. It made songs become grandiose, epic masterpieces under his tutelage. His cast of studio musicians, who he usually worked with, his engineer Larry Levin, and his arranger Jack Nitsky, all became known as the Wrecking Crew. The bands played on some of the most iconic recordings of the 1960s, including the Beach Boys' epic album Pet Sounds, the first two albums by the Monkees, and on the Birds' version of Bob Dylan's song Mr. Tambourine Man. The entire Wrecking Crew, by the way, which included soon-to-be-famous artists Glenn Campbell, Hal Blaine, and Leon Russell, were all inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame back in 2007. Soon... Everyone wanted to have Phil's touch on their records, especially the Wall of Sound. From 1960 to 1966, Phil worked with groups like the Ronettes, the Righteous Brothers, and Ike and Tina Turner. Phil went into semi-retirement for a few years, but then came storming back in 1969. He produced the Beatles' Let It Be album, and then went on to produce George Harrison, John Lennon, and a bunch more. And in 1989, Phil was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that is where the story should really end, with a brilliant, iconic producer and his legendary career. Except that it doesn't, unfortunately. See... In the 1970s, Phil became something of a recluse. He was involved in an auto accident where he almost lost his life back in 1974. Because of the number of scars from the stitches to his head, he took to wearing crazy wigs. He was married to Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes from 1968 to 1974. Ronnie described him as a lousy husband as he was prone to violence. He also had a thing for guns, which is what led to his downfall. Rumor had it was that when he was working on the landmark Ramones album, End of the Century, he routinely threatened the Ramones with guns, waving them around and pointing the guns at them. That last part, by the way, would come back to haunt more than one person. On the evening of February 3rd, 2003, Phil went to the House of Blues Club in Los Angeles, California, and while there, he met actress Lana Clarkson. After a while, the two of them were driven back to Phil's mansion in Alhambra, California by Spectre's driver. According to court documents, Spectre's driver waited in the car for about an hour, and then the driver heard a gunshot. A few minutes after that, Phil came outside with a gun and said to the driver, quote, I think I just shot her, end quote. Lana Clarkson was dead from a gunshot wound to her mouth. Spectre claimed that Lana had committed, quote, an accidental suicide by, quote, kissing the gun, end quote. 
There were two trials for Phil Spector. The first trial in 2007 ended with a hung jury since two of the 12 jurors failed to find Spector guilty of second-degree murder. There were also allegations that the coroner's office hid evidence that would have proved that Spector was guilty. During that trial, evidence came out from four other women that Spector had pointed a gun at them as they tried to leave his mansion during the times that they were with him after spurning his romantic advances. A second trial started in 2008. In 2009, this jury found Phil Spector guilty and Phil was ordered to serve 19 years in prison. Turns out, That sentence became a life sentence as Spector became ill with COVID-19 during the pandemic while in prison and passed away in the prison hospital on January 16th, 2021. What is sad about Phil's life was that as strange and mentally unbalanced as he was, he was a brilliant producer. His style was extremely influential to music to this very day, as evidenced by every time you hear songs with over a hundred tracks layered one on top of each other. Phil Spector's dark side, though, won out in the end, which is what he is actually remembered for, as evidenced by the headlines upon his death that talk more about the murder and less about his legendary production style and career. The murder of actress Lana Clarkson at the hands of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, music producer Phil Spector, on February 3rd, 2003. Before we get to the final story, there are some honorable and not-so-honorable mentions to discuss. On February 1st, 1896, for instance, composer Giacomo Puccini premiered his classic opera La Boheme. On February 1st, 2004, in an act that created a slew of controversy that still ripples to this day, Justin Timberlake ripped Janet Jackson's jacket over her breast, exposing her nipple on national television during a halftime performance at the Super Bowl. On February 2nd, 2019, R. Kelly was arrested on 10 counts of aggravated criminal sexual abuse, among many other charges. On February 3rd, 1989, Tone Loke's hit song, Wild Thing, with its sample of Van Halen's song, Jamie's Crying, became the first hip-hop song to sell over a million copies. On February 4, 1972, United States Senator Strom Thurmond suggested in a memo to U.S. Attorney General and eventual convicted criminal John Mitchell that John Lennon should be deported for his anti-war stance concerning the Vietnam War, which led to John Lennon having a four-year battle with the United States government in order to keep from being deported. On February 4th, 1974, speaking of John Lennon, John started his famed Lost Weekend, which lasted for 18 months. There are certain dates that get immortalized into the national consciousness for one reason or another. They usually have to do with tragic events. November 22nd, 1963, John F. Kennedy's assassination. December 7, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor that led America to get into World War II officially. Uh, 
September 11, 2001, the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The January 6, 2021, insurrection on the United States Capitol. Some get immortalized in song. April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King's assassination was the basis of U2's song Pride in the Name of Love. Don McLean's song, American Pie, immortalized the loss of innocence after this next tragic event. Charles Hardin Holly was one of the pioneers of rock and roll. Nicknamed Buddy, he was born and raised in Lubbock, Texas and played guitar as a kid. Like a lot of musicians back in the day, Holly was heavily influenced by country, gospel, and R&B music. He started playing on local TV shows and actually opened up for Elvis Presley. That was the point when he decided to go into music full-time. Holly recorded for Deco Records, but wasn't too happy about it, so he recorded a demo for producer Norman Petty, who ended up becoming the group's manager, the group being Buddy Holly and Crickets. It was through Petty that Holly recorded That'll Be the Day with the Crickets. He released the album Chirping Crickets in late 1957, and over the next couple of years, he and the Crickets toured all over the country along with Australia and Great Britain. In the late 1950s, rock and roll was beginning to gain steam. Acts had started touring around the United States. By this time, Buddy had hit it big with songs like Peggy Sue. His act started out as Buddy Holly and the Crickets, but he broke up with his backup band in late 1958 and was in need of a new band for a new tour. Buddy got future country music superstar Waylon Jennings, along with Tommy Alsup, Carl Bunch, and Frankie Sardo. They dubbed the tour the Winter Dance Party Tour. They were going to play 24 cities in 24 days, and along to support the tour were Dion and the Belmonts, J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. The Big Bopper, who had a hit song called Chantilly Lace, and Richie Valens, who was getting hot off of songs like La Bamba and Donna and was only 17 years old at the time. The tour started on January 23rd in Wisconsin. There were problems with the tour from the start. The performances were fine, but the fact was that this was a tour in the Midwest in the middle of winter. And it was a pretty bad winter at that. Their tour buses were actually old school buses, and the heat broke down on them a lot. And some band members actually started to catch the flu. By the time the tour hit Clear Lake, Iowa, Holly had had enough with the buses. As it was, Clear Lake wasn't even on the original tour list, but they had an open date, and the buses had driven over 350 miles to get there. So Holly decided that he was going to charter a plane for the next stop, which was in Fargo, North Dakota. The manager of the surf ballroom, the place that they were playing that night, called the Dwyer Flying Service to charter a single-engine Beechcraft 35 Bonanza plane with a pilot named Roger Peterson. The plane could only fit three people plus the pilot, so not everybody on the tour could fit. There has been some discrepancy as to what exactly went down with the events as to how people were chosen for the flight, especially after Dion DiMucci, the Dion in Dion and the Belmonts, changed up the story a little in an interview not too long ago. 
I'm going with the common story, as it is known and was portrayed in the Richie Valens movie La Bamba, starring Lou Diamond Phillips. Originally, it was supposed to be Holly, Jennings, and Alsop. However, Richardson, the big bopper, had the flu and asked Jennings if he could take the seat. Jennings said yes. When Holly found out about it, he good-naturedly kidded with Jennings, saying, quote, I hope your old bus freezes up. To which Jennings kidded, quote, Well, I hope your old plane crashes. That phrase haunted Jennings for the rest of his life. As far as how Valens ended up on the flight, he asked to trade with Alsup. Alsup didn't want to give it up, so the two decided with a coin toss. And Valens either won or lost the coin toss, depending on how you look at history, I guess. After the concert, Holly Richardson and Valens were driven out to the airfield and boarded the plane. The weather going to Fargo that night was getting bad, but apparently the pilot, Peterson, never got those updates to the forecast. The plane took off, and when the plane was supposed to do a radio check, there was no response. The air tower tried again and again. No response. The next morning, the owner of the Dwyer Flying Service took up another airplane to retrace the flight path to see what might have happened. And it was he who spotted the wreckage of the plane, which had crashed into a field not long after takeoff. Buddy Holly's wife, who was pregnant at the time, found out via news reports and not through the authorities. She collapsed and later had a miscarriage. After that, a rule was adopted to not release any victims' names of an accident until relatives are notified first. That really didn't work out in Kobe Bryant's case, unfortunately. As far as a cause for the accident, it was mainly blamed on the inexperience of Peterson, the pilot, who was only 21 at the time and hadn't had enough training, nor did the plane have the right equipment to fly in wintry conditions, at least according to authorities. The tour itself would go on, with Jennings taking over headlining duties for a couple more weeks. For a generation, though... Their childhood innocence was lost that day, much like it was when Kurt Cobain died in the 1990s for the Generation X crowd like myself, or when, let's say, Chester Bennington or Chris Cornell died recently for millennials. Don McLean coined the loss that day in his song American Pie as the day the music died and the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and pilot Roger Peterson that was immortalized in Don McLean's classic song, American Pie, occurred on the evening of February 3rd, 1959. And you can learn more about the short but brilliant life of Buddy Holly and view all of his memorabilia, by the way, at the Buddy Holly Center at 1801 Crickets Avenue in Lubbock, Texas. And that is it for the Music History In-Depth podcast for January 29th through February 4th. Thanks for listening.